Well, if you're asking me what I have been getting ready to preach on over the last several weeks, um, I decided that I would come back and preach on one verse um, to you. I know that'll come as a great surprise. Uh, yes, one verse. We're coming back to Mark chapter 14. And we've just gotten through, if you can cast your mind back, what, four Sundays ago now, to the Lord's Supper, the last Passover, if you will, at least one that was commanded for all of God's people to participate in, and the first Lord's Supper, what we call communion, what some churches call Eucharist, which literally just means giving thanks. The Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, we have seen that in this Passover feast, Jesus takes the bread, and in this ceremony, they all would have known how it went. They all would have understood what happens next, except Jesus takes their long-standing national and religious celebration and makes it all about himself. He breaks the bread, and if you look with me in Mark chapter 14, and verse 22, he says, He took bread and blessed and broke it and gave to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Whoa! Completely different. This is my body. And they eat it. And he took the cup. Okay, the fruit of the vine. They understood what this part of the Passover ceremony is. They've been doing it since they were children. And he takes that cup that they would have participated in. And he said, this is my blood. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. And they drink it. Making this foundational Jewish ceremony now something about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we looked at that four weeks ago, and I hope we get gained our own fresh perspective on what we are doing when we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Every week, whether in our evening service or the first Sunday of the month in our morning service. But sometimes we might just skip over verse 26. No, we're not going to do that today. Look with me at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And when they had sung. Do you ever sit back and wonder what Jesus' singing voice sounded like? Was he a tenor? Was he a bass? Was he a baritone? Did he have a nice voice? Did, did you ever step back and wonder what it was like to sit in that upper room and hear Jesus and his disciples singing? Now, I don't know about you. I suspect some of those fishermen couldn't hit a note if it was stapled in front of them. I don't know. That's just my guess. But they sung. Now I just want, I want that to sink in for you for just a moment. They sung. You said, well, why does that matter? Well, what do we do every single Sunday we come here? We sing. At least, I hope you do. 
We sing. Now, let me step back and ask you a question for just a moment. Why do we sing when we come to church? Why do we sing? Now, there are some of you who grew up in churches, and you grew up singing, and you looked around when you were a kid, and you said, why on earth are these people doing this? You didn't get it then. Maybe you don't get it now. Maybe when you open up that hymn book, the words are foreign to you, the, those little squiggles on the page, what on earth are those? Those are foreign to you, the music is foreign to you, and so you just don't sing. For some of us, maybe, the singing that we do in church is little more than just a part of the schedule. We sing a couple songs, and then we pray, and then we do the announcements, and then we read the Bible reading, and then we sing another song, and then we get to the sermon. Maybe for some people, maybe you grew up in a church where the singing was all about not you singing, but someone else singing. Now you can see here, we don't have a choir. There's no performance going on. Um, there's no special music that we have. Not that those things are wrong. I don't, I don't believe those things are wrong. Maybe you've been to a church uh, that is more contemporary in style and people are here on the front singing. It was interesting, this last few weeks I went and visited a couple different churches. One was more contemporary in style. One was more traditional in style. And do you know what I always love to do when I go to a new church? When people sing, I just like to look around. I love singing. Probably not a surprise to you. I love singing. I, I look around and I just, are people singing? Are people engaging? And you know, sometimes I see when I go to churches, how very few people are singing. Maybe there are people up front. They're the ones that are singing and the people are just kind of watching. It's a spectator sport. Other people are singing, but the people in the audience are not. Maybe you grew up in a church in which excellence in music was really highlighted. The choir saying beautiful music. Everything was absolutely perfect about the music. And people came and they heard the music and they said, this is beautiful music. And they never opened their mouths and sang. Why do we sing? I just want to take this one verse this morning and try to come into the context of Jesus singing and ask ourselves what it means for the way that you sing when you come to church in the morning and how I sing when I come to church. You see, if we were to step back and look at the context of singing in the Bible, you would see that it's everywhere. Do you know the book of Job? pictures the angels singing at the creation of the world? Wow, what a sound. At the end of our Bibles, in the book of Revelation, the curtains of heaven are drawn back. And what is recorded? That they are singing a new song. I got to tell you, friends, if you don't like singing here, you better get ready because you're going to be doing an awful lot of singing forever if you're one of God's children, if you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. You're going to be singing a lot in heaven. 
And what we have a chance to do every time we come here and sing on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, we have a chance to have just a little tiny foretaste of what it's going to be one day forever. Just the slightest little hint. Like when you taste, when you just take the smallest taste of, of a meal you've prepared and you, you stick it on your tongue and you say, oh, that's good. I can't wait for the whole meal. That's what you have the chance to do when you come here and sing with us. It's just like putting a little taste on your tongue and one day you're going to get the whole meal, the full course. Why do we sing? Because not only is it all over the Bible, not only is it all over our world. Go walk around. Go walk around Minneapolis. Go drive your car to work in the morning and you'll encounter singing. Maybe it's on your radio. But do you know where else it'll be? At the guy in the stoplight next to you who's banging his head and singing loudly. And then you look at him and he looks at you and he's like, Ooh, and he gets all embarrassed, right? Singing is everywhere. Why? Go down to the NFL stadium today and you'll hear people raucously singing. Skull Vikings, let's, right? They'll be raucously singing. God made us to sing. He expects us to sing. And the greatest reason why we sing is not just because God sings, not just because singing is everywhere, but because your Lord sang. Jesus sang. And therefore, we are to sing as well. The title of the message this morning is simply this, A Singing Savior. A Singing Savior. I want to look this morning at Jesus' singing and try to gl glean some principles for us as well. Let's start first of all with what I'm going to call the context of singing. The context of singing. Before we understand truly what Jesus was doing when he sang, Let's try to understand something about singing in general. What is singing? Well, if you were to ask a, a, uh, a person who is involved in human anatomy and physiology, you would say singing is what happens when air is forced across your vocal cords, right, through your vocal folds, and it is directed toward particular pitches. We take a breath in, we open our mouth, and we project sound in a musical way. That's singing. But you and I both know that's a pretty sterile way to describe singing. What, is, what are we doing when we sing? Let me just suggest, just across the history of all of human experience, what it is we're doing when we sing. Three things. First of all, what are we doing when we sing? We are expressing how we feel. That's probably the most fundamental thing when we sing. We are expressing how we feel. And it tracks to the music we are singing. 
Now, probably many of you know when I was in college, I was a music major. My degree is in music. I studied performance and I studied his, the history of music. And one of the things that we studied was very ancient music, at least in, in Western standards. We were looking at songs from the 1400s and the 1500s, and there were these old madrigals, they're called, these old songs. And they were played to a mandolin or to a lute or uh, some kind of accompaniment. There were these songs. And do you know what they were talking about? The exact same thing they're talking about today when you turn on the local pop music station. They're talking about love. They're talking about love lost. They're talking about the sadness of a broken heart. They're talking about honor and nobility. They're talking about fame and prestige. They're talking about everything that our songs today are talking about. And do you know, if you went back far beyond the 1400s and the 1500s, and you went back to the very beginning of human history, you'd hear people singing songs about the same thing. Why? Because those things are common to all human beings, and therefore we sing about them. We sing to express how we feel. We sing to express joy. We sing to express sadness. We sing to express a kind of triumph and exhilaration. Go back into Bible times. In Exodus chapter 15, right after God has led his people through the Red Sea, what does Moses do? He sings a song. You can read it in Exodus chapter 15. Deborah and Barak in the book of Judges, they have a great military triumph. And what do they do? They sing a song. Why? Because music expresses the way that we feel. Do you know this is entirely true in a secular sense as well? I've talked about this a little bit, but some of you know that uh, the most influential pop singer of our generation, Taylor Swift, came to U.S. Bank Stadium. And it was very interesting. One of my colleagues, uh, a partner of mine, uh, sent a video of, of his daughters and uh, a, another friend of theirs who went to this concert. And it was them of the concert. And I was just, it was not my world. It was very surprising. But nonetheless, as Taylor Swift, he was capturing them as Taylor Swift came out. And you should have heard them scream. And it was like this shrill scream that came from, from tens of thousands of other young women in that audience. And then they were recounting how, how the, the songs that Taylor Swift sings, these girls knew every word, literally every word. And they sang, they shouted, they screamed every word across hours of a concert. And this, this colleague of mine was, was talking to me. He, he, he was just marveling at the influence that Taylor Swift had over those young women. They knew every one of her songs by heart. And he made a very interesting statement. He says, There's something, it's something about Taylor Swift is not speaking to them. She's speaking for them. And I thought, wow. You put your finger on something there. Taylor Swift is not speaking to them. She is speaking for them. Because millions of young women hear what Taylor Swift says when she experiences and professes her heartbreak or her joy or her exhilaration or her greatest moments and her saddest moments. And those young women are saying, yes, I'm feeling what I have felt that too. And when I am feeling that, I express it through what? Your music. 
I express it through this song. It explains the unbelievable cultural significance that Taylor Swift has. If you talk to any musician, they would say, Taylor Swift is not a particularly gifted musician. It's not to say she's not gifted. It's not just that she's not known for being a guitar player. She's not known for being a singer. She's not known for being a dancer. She is not known for any of those significant um, uh, musical talents. She is known for speaking to the experience of her audience. And it creates an absolutely powerful powerful effect. But then step back for a minute and think about the songs when you were a child, when you were a young person. What explains the Beatles? What explains the Rolling Stones? What explains Prince? What explains every musical phenomenon of our pop cultural world? They are expressing something that people feel very deeply. And that is what singing does. Singing is expressing something about how we are feeling at a given time. And again, Scripture makes this clear. James chapter 5. You can just make a note of this. You won't turn to it, but maybe you'll go and read it again. James 5 and verse 13 says this. Is any merry? Is any joyful? Is any happy? Let him sing psalms. What's he saying? Music is expressing the way that you feel. And we see that in the book of Psalms, all throughout the book of Psalms. If you just plug in the word, search the word sing in the book of Psalms, you know you'll find more than 50 different references in the book of Psalms, most of which are either commanding you to sing or are expressing one's own testimony of singing. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Music expresses the way that we feel. Singing expresses how we feel. Not only that, singing teaches us how to think. Singing teaches us how to think. When you sing, whatever the soundtrack of your life is, it is shaping the way that you think, and therefore it is shaping the way that you feel. Do you know those young women in our day and age who are listening to Taylor Swift and memorizing every word that she sings, do you know they will be shaped by that for the rest of their lives? They will be shaped in how they think to the way that Taylor Swift thinks. Music has that indelible power in our lives. And we know this actually again from the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 says these words. You can again take a look at this on your own time. It says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't don't, Don't be a drunk. Don't be getting drunk. Don't be drinking in that way to be influenced by wine, that's what he's saying, but what are you to be doing? You are to be filled with, you are to be influenced by, you are to be controlled by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. And listen to what he says. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You are to be speaking to, the idea here is one another. That's what we do. When we come to church, we are singing and speaking to one another by the songs that we sing. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are to be teaching one another by the songs we sing when we come to church. That means when we open our hymnals and sing, We're not just expressing how we feel. 
we are teaching one another with the words that we sing. Do you know this is not just, this is not just a, a modern phenomenon. This goes back to the very earliest days of the church. In fact, you can find this um, uh, a historical record around A.D. 113, less than 100 years before Jesus lived. There was a letter written by a man named Pliny, and it was to the emperor Trajan, the emperor of Rome. And he was writing about these Christians. You can find this letter. It's all publicly available online. It's translated into English for you. And he's talking about the Christians He's wondering what to do about the Christians because it's this faith that's blowing up and they're persecuting and they're trying to stomp it down and he's seeking advice from the emperor about what to do. And do you know how he describes the Christians? Listen to what he says. He says that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn. It's to avoid persecution. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day. Which fixed day do you think that was? Sunday the Lord's Day, before dawn and sing responsively. That's back and forth. They were to sing back and forth to one another a hymn to Christ as to a God. Isn't it an amazing thing? Wouldn't people say the same things when they come into our church assembly? What do they do? What do those Christians do? If you never knew anything, well, they come in and they sing these songs. Who do they sing them to? They sing them to Jesus, and they're treating him like he's a god. Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly right. That is what we do when we come to church. We sing the same things that they were doing thousands of years ago, worshiping Christ by song as to a god. Music not only expresses how we feel when we sing, singing not only teaches us how to think, but here's also what it does. It invites us to connect with those around us. Singing invites us to connect with those around us. Here is the word of Psalm 150. If you've ever read Psalm 150, the last psalm in the hymn book of the Bible, the Psalms, here is what the psalmist is saying. He says, praise ye the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. I like that verse. Praise him upon the loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Do you see what he's doing? He's like the conductor of a band. Okay, trumpets, your turn. Trombones, your turn. All right, tubas. He's saying, everyone, let, every, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Now, why is that? Because it's a powerful thing when we sing together. Like I said, go to a sporting event and listen to how they sing. People who can't carry a tune to save their life, they sing. They shout. 15 years ago, almost 15 years ago, the Minnesota Twins were playing the Detroit Tigers. And it was the final game, the playoff game, to determine who would win the division and go to the playoffs. And I wasn't there, but I heard from others who are there. It dragged into extra innings, and it was this very, very exciting event. And the song came on over the speakers, Don't Stop Believing. 
and everyone just breaks out singing. 60,000 people just singing at the top of their lungs until they got to the point, remember they're playing Detroit, and, and born and raised in South Detroit, the song goes, and the whole crowd as one starts booing. Those Detroit Tigers, man. Boo them. Do you know 15 years later, every single person who was there at that time remembers that? They remember singing that together. They remember booing the lyrics of the song, South Detroit. Why? Because when we sing together, we connect with one another. We are sharing our experiences and our emotions and our feelings with one another. Now, I just want to step back. Jesus is doing all of these things when he's singing in that last room, in that upper room at that last supper. He is expressing his feelings. He is singing. He is teaching. He is inviting his disciples to connect with him. He is doing all of those things. You say, what was he singing? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, but do you know what you would have been sung at every single Passover feast? The Hallel. Now, again, what is the Hallel? The Hallel is a connection of psalms, a collection of psalms from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Psalm 113, two or three psalms would be sung at the beginning, near the beginning of, of the meal. And then the last few psalms, Psalm 116 to Psalm 118, would be sung near the end of the meal. Now, if you want a homework assignment today, go home this afternoon and read Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 all the way through, and then imagine Jesus singing those psalms with his disciples. What was he singing? He was singing scripture, almost certainly. And he was inviting his disciples in to connect with him. What is the context of this singing? What is the context of Jesus' singing? It is expressing how he felt. It is teaching how to think. And it was inviting his disciples to connect with him. Let's move quickly then to the circumstances of his singing because this is where this just blows my mind. The book of Proverbs talks about what it's like to sing songs to a heavy heart. It said it's like taking off clothing in cold weather. It's like pouring vinegar on baking soda. That's what the Proverbs say, is singing songs to someone who has a heavy heart. Have you ever tried to sing when you have a really broken heart, a really heavy heart? Someone says, come on, strike up the band. Are you kidding me? Now, I want you to imagine what Jesus was feeling in that Last Supper. If music is, is singing is expressing how we feel, how would you have been feeling at that Last Supper? What had just happened? At that Last Supper, one of his 12 best friends in the entire world left to betray him for 30 measly pieces of silver and to kill him. How would you be feeling? Immediately before this, Jesus had taken the bread of that Passover supper and broken it and said, this is my body. 
broken for you, how would you feel? Jesus took the cup of that Passover and said, this is my blood shed for you. How would you feel? Jesus sung a hymn and he went out into the Mount of Olives. And look with me, will you, at verse 27. Jesus saith unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night. All of you are going to stumble at me. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus is quoting Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Again, you can look it up on your own time. Zechariah 13 and verse 7. Do you see what Jesus was looking forward to at that Last Supper? Not only one of his 12 disciples going and betraying him to be arrested and killed, but the other 11 abandoning him in his hour of greatest need, running away. One of them, Peter, you'll see, denying him. Look at verse 29. Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. I won't do that. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this day, even in this night, before the cock crow twice, what is that? It's referring to the early hours of the day when the roosters would begin to crow. They would recognize the day was coming. Peter said, Jesus told Peter, before even two roosters crow, you're going to deny me three times. What was Jesus feeling? Looking ahead to what would be coming. Notice again when he says, it is written, I will smite the shepherd. I will smite the shepherd. Who was the I there? Who was I? I will smite the shepherd. That's God. Jesus was looking ahead to God, his Father, smiting him. Why would God the Father strike his own son? Why would he pour out his wrath on his own son? Because I deserve to be struck. I deserve to be judged. I deserve the wrath of God to fall on me. But in the love of God and in the grace poured out by his Son, Jesus came to take the wrath of God, to be smitten as the perfect shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He experiences the wrath of God. He is broken. His blood is shed for me, in my place. And Jesus looked ahead to only a matter of hours when he would sit in that garden and pour out his soul in agony to his father, literally sweating drops of blood, the capillaries in his skin breaking in the pressure and literally sweating blood, that agony, as he said, Father, if this cup may pass... Father, Father, but nonetheless, if it's your will, I'll drink it. How was Jesus feeling at the end of that Last Supper when he sang a hymn with his disciples? Now, this is, again, what simply blows my mind about our Savior, about a singing Savior. When all of us would have been looking to sing a funeral dirge if we were going to sing anything at all, Jesus gathers his disciples around and he leads them in a song of praise to God in the circumstances approaching his darkest and most discouraging hour on earth. 
You see, we need to look not only at the context of singing, not only the circumstances of Jesus singing, but at the conviction of his singing. The conviction of his singing. What allowed Jesus to sing in his darkest hour? What allowed him to invite his disciples in to experience this singing with him? It was something that he knew. I think there's a clue. Will you look with me down at verse number 28? In verse 27, Jesus says, You'll all be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But notice verse 28. But after that, I am risen. What did Jesus know about what was coming after his darkest hour? He knew. That as the psalmist said thousands of years before, you will not leave my soul in hell. You will not leave my soul in the grave. You will not. Why? Because in you is life. Jesus knew the Father's plan for him. And I want to point one other thing to you. Will you turn back with me to Psalm 118 for a moment? Psalm 118, I think... If I'm right that Jesus sung this hymn with his disciples, experiences or, 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 or reveals something that I think would have allowed Jesus to sing, to express not his discouragement and despair about what was coming in front of him, but actually his joy. Listen to verse number 21 of Psalm 118, and I want you to imagine Jesus singing this as he approached his darkest hour. Verse 21 says, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. The New Testament writers cited that to say it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about God's choosing. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. Literally, Hosanna. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Stop there. Who is he talking about? Who is the psalmist speaking of? He's speaking of the Messiah. He's speaking of Jesus himself. And now Jesus in this Last Supper may have been reading and singing this, knowing that thousand, a thousand years previously, this was being written of him. God's chosen, God's Messiah. Look at verse 27. God is the Lord, which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. Who was the sacrifice? Who was the sacrifice being bound to the horns of the altar? Do you think as Jesus saying those words, he looked ahead to what would happen on the cross. And knowing God's purpose and plan for him, he said, yes, Father, bind that sacrifice with cords. Bind it to the horns of the altar. I'm ready. And he sang. He sang. 
We have an amazing Savior, don't we? We have a singing Savior. One who taught us to sing. And if I take one thing away from this passage, they sung a hymn. It's this. Your circumstances, when you come each Sunday morning or Sunday evening to this church, should never, should never control how you sing. Never. Because I can promise you, friends, no matter what circumstances you're experiencing, they aren't as dark as what Jesus the Messiah was experiencing when he sang with his disciples the night of his betrayal. Whatever you went through this week, whatever trials, whatever troubles, whatever difficulties are staring you right in the face when you come to church, that shouldn't control how you sing. Why? Because it's not the circumstances that you see that should control ultimately how we feel. What Jesus knew was he was tapping into a reality that was deeper and that was greater for him than the circumstances of what he was looking toward in the next several hours. He had a foundation. He had a rock that he could stand on. He knew God's purpose for him. He knew who his father was. He knew what was ahead of him. And so he sang. Hebrews chapter 12. Isn't this so wonderful? Looking unto Jesus... The, the, the writer of Hebrews tells us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He was singing with joy when he sang in that upper room. Not because of the circumstances that surrounded him, but because of the unshakable conviction of his heart about who God was and about what his good purposes for his son were. You know, friends, all of us have been there before. We show up at church on a Sunday morning. It's been an awful week. We tripped over our dog on the way out the door and stubbed our toe. Our car wouldn't start. We had to brush snow off. We've all been there. And we show up in church. And we sit down. And we open the hymnal. And it feels like we're speaking a foreign language. We can't sing. Until we step back. And we say, wait a second. Who's God? And what has he done for me? And what has he promised eternally for me? And what has he done in bringing me together with these people here? You know, when you start focusing on those things, you're going to be able to sing. And you're going to be able to express your feeling. Not, really, not based on your temporal circumstances, but on the spirit-fueled conviction that is given to you in the word of God. You know, it's an amazing thing. We see this throughout church history. We see it in Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas have gone to a city named Philippi, 
And they've had this wonderful success. A woman named Lydia comes to Christ, and they're going around and preaching the gospel, and suddenly opposition uh, uh, turns up against them, and they're arrested, and they're thrown in to a prison. They're beaten. And what happens? If I can rescue my microphone here. And what happens? Acts chapter 16 tells us, And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. Not only that, I was reading this week about a pastor who was arrested in a communist country and placed with a number of other Christians in prison. It's just an amazing thing. This man was quoted, and he said, the communists did a very kind thing to us. He said, they gave us musical instruments to sing. He was, of course, being sarcastic. He said, they didn't give us musical instruments. He said, they put us in chains. They gave us chains. And you know what that man said? We sang. This is the day, clink, clink. This is the day that the Lord has made. You talk about people who aren't looking at their circumstances, but are rooted in their conviction of who God is and what he's done for them. Now let's turn the mirror on ourselves for a little bit. If our Savior can sing praise to God when he's staring down the darkest day of his life, if Paul and Silas can sing praise joyfully to God when they've been beaten and stuck in a Philippian jail, if our brothers and sisters can sing joyfully clinking chains together in a communist jail cell, what excuse do you and I have when we don't open our mouths and sing with all our heart? when we come to church on a Sunday morning. No matter what circumstances you're going through today, my friend, I'm sure some of you are going through some very heavy ones. Remember Jesus in that upper room. Remember your brothers and sisters. And follow the example of your singing Savior. And let's commit every time we come to church together to open our mouths to express how we're feeling about who God is and what he's done for us. To teach one another about how we should think and how we should feel. And to invite one another to connect in worship with us.